Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Shai Calvo and Neil Franklin discuss militarized police, community engagement, and the drug war. Cato's Jim Harper evaluates the Fourth Amendment and cell phones. And law professor Nadine Strossen discusses the new landscape of the First Amendment and electoral politics. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Every two years, the Cato Institute evaluates America's governors uh, for their fiscal policy chops. And we're here to talk about uh, that report that has just been released. We're speaking with Nicole Kading and Chris Edwards, both of the Cato Institute. Uh, so first, welcome. And uh, just to get started here, what was the most surprising thing that uh, you learned about uh, America's governors based in this particular run through of the governor's report card? Well, I think the the main thing we uh, we found that's very encouraging is not so much the individual governors, but just the broad focus on income tax reforms and other types of tax reforms in recent years. We have a very high number of Republican uh, governors and governor's mansions across the nations, and a lot of them are focusing on tax reforms, which is very good. I think what's also noteworthy is not only do we have Republican governors focusing on tax reform, there were several Democratic governors who also focused on tax reform, most notably Andrew Cuomo of New York and Lincoln Chafee of Rhode Island. Both of these governors passed broad corporate income tax reform this year, which is very unprecedented among the Democratic governors of the last five to ten years. When you hand out these scores, I think it's probably worth uh, getting into some level of detail here. Do you have to have A's? Yeah, in in a way, the, the way we score this uh, report card is it's bell curved. The governors essentially compete against each other. If a governor d did absolutely nothing except the average on taxes and spending the last few years, he would get a C. Governors who uh, cut taxes and spending more than the other governors got A's and B's, and the governors who raised taxes and spending got the D's and F's. Which is more important, uh, cutting taxes or cutting spending? Taxes have more of an impact. Of the seven variables that we use, taxes comprise five of those. Who were some of the governors who uh, were most innovative in their, in their moves to reduce taxes and spending? Well, the four A governors were both very good on taxes and spending. So the four A governors were Pat McCrory of uh, North Carolina, Sam Brownback of Kansas, Paul LePage of Maine, Mike Pence of Indiana. Uh, they all passed large uh, tax cuts, and they were all very frugal on spending. The budgets of those four states have essentially been flat for the last three years. Let's go to the worst governors. Uh, what did they do? Who are they and what did they do? So while we had four A governors, we had we had eight governors that received Fs in the report card. Uh, the lowest score was awarded to Jerry Brown of California, who got both taxes and spending wrong. In 2012, Jerry Brown campaigned very hard for a large income tax increase in the state of California, raised income taxes by about $7 billion a year, huge increases. Uh, in addition, they've had large increases in spending. What you've seen in, for Jerry Brown since 2012 through 2015, there's almost a $20 billion increase in general fund spending in the state of California. And it's not just in one area. There's more spending on transportation, most notably is high 
high-speed rail proposals. There's more spending in Medicaid, which provides health insurance to low-income individuals. There's more spending in education. Basically, every bucket of the California budget has gotten much larger over the last three years. I'd point out the other governor that that uh, uh, really is at the, the he scored an F this time he scored an F on the Cato report card two years ago was Pat Quinn of Illinois. Uh, Illinois has a terrible debt problem, a huge problem with unfunded pension liabilities. Uh, Mr. Quinn uh, did an unprecedented uh, tax series of tax hikes in recent years, raising the personal income tax from three to five percent and the corporate income tax from four point eight to seven percent. He claimed that those tax cuts would be temporary uh, to help the state solve its budget problems. Well, now he's been pu he's pushing to make those tax increases permanent, and the state still is in uh, deep fiscal trouble. States vary widely in terms of uh, what goes on. You do not include Alaska. Why is that? Alaska's budget is very unique, and it's hard to draw a lot of conclusions from it. And that's because of their large oil and gas depositories. The state ends up sending residents uh, about $1,200 a year, and so their budget is just so abnormal, it doesn't make for a good apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Well, what about New Mexico? I mean, that's a state that is uh, more dependent on uh, federal employment than any other state, which surprises some people to learn. It's true. Every state has eccentricities and uh, unique features of their fiscal environment, but Alaska is really so different that we didn't think we could fairly compare. I mean, right now we, we see a, a state that's in an extraordinary situation is North Dakota with the energy boom there. Um, the governor has, um, has cut taxes substantially, but spending has also gone up. The, the state government is benefiting by a huge amount of uh, oil-related uh, revenues. And so uh, it was it was difficult to grade him uh, because spending has gone up. But on the other hand, he hasn't spent all the extra money. He's substantially cut income taxes to his credit. All right. So and and on that on that note, uh, a lot of states have uh, different economies. And do governors get a pass or anything like a pass when it comes to uh, being in dire fiscal straits or having a booming economy? You know, we score the governors who cut taxes, especially marginal tax rate, it's the highest. I don't think that uh, tax cuts necessarily have a strong immediate effect on economic growth. I think the effect of uh, state income taxes, for example, will manifest itself over time. Over time, a state that has lower marginal tax rates on businesses and entrepreneurs uh, will have more uh, business startups and more business investment over time, but it's not going to happen overnight. The one thing we do consider is we look at both proposed and enacted policies, however, because uh, you might have a situation like a Chris Christie of New Jersey who is Republican with a Democratic legislature, so his budget's going to be a bit more fiscally conservative than what ultimately gets passed in the legislation. But you can have the opposite. So Jay Nixon of Missouri um, vetoed tax cuts in 2013 as well as in 2014. So by including both proposed and enacted tax increases, we're getting a better picture of what What's actually happening in each state? What role do business taxes play in the, in the ratings that you hand out? Well, something that is very important for America's economic competitiveness in the world, uh, believe it or not, is state and local business taxes. There's been big fights in Washington over the corporate income tax at the federal level. That raises about $300 billion a year. But if you look at the uh, sum total of all state and local business taxes, they raise more than $600 billion a year. 
The biggest state business tax are property taxes on business, which raise about $250 billion a year. Many states not only tax the land and buildings of factories and other sorts of businesses, but all the machines within those factories are subject to annual property taxes. So a lot of the state and local governments have some very anti-investment and anti-business taxes, and we take those into account in our study. When Obamacare was moving through the House and Senate, uh, a whole lot of uh, people who were promoting Obamacare said, look, states have a critical role to play in this. They're sort of have been backtracking on, on that uh, in recent months. But some governors have expanded Medicaid. They've taken some parts of the Affordable Care Act and uh, left others. So to what extent is encouraging federal subsidies part of, of the grades that you hand out? We did not specifically include whether the governors expanded Medicaid or did not, but we do talk a great deal about in the report is the, what those choices and how those will impact state budgets moving forward. The way the Medicaid expansion was set up under the Affordable Care Act is that the federal government would pay 100% of those expenditures for the first three years and would- For newly eligible. For the newly eligible individuals, yes. And would eventually stair step that down to about 90% in 2020 and into perpetuity. But that cost to the federal government just for those newly eligible individuals is almost $800 billion over the next 10 years. It's a very large cost to the federal budget. And actually, both parties, including the president, have suggested that the federal government will need to cut that uh, that reimbursement rate to the states over the next several years because the federal government, frankly, cannot afford it. So what will happen is that as these reimbursement rates get cut and as these individuals go on to Medicaid, state spending will increase and it will start to increase dramatically. So while it's not directly captured in this report, future report cards will pick up this large increase in government entitlements. Okay, so not this time around, but uh, of course, when you expand Medicaid and eligibility um, for Medicaid, that encourages states to spend more than they otherwise would on that program. Right. And so you do have some of the higher rated governors did decide to expand Medicaid. Uh, but we think that that what will happen in the next several years, their scores will fall dramatically as that additional costs are borne by the state. All right. Uh, a comparison here, Indiana and Illinois. This is uh, Mike Pence versus Pat Quinn of uh, Illinois. This is an A state governor and an F state governor. So what is the difference between Indiana and Illinois? What can be interesting and what's done a lot on the state level is people try to compare different states. And those comparisons can be very difficult. California is obviously very different in terms of size and weather from a state like North Dakota. North Dakota has oil deposits. California has the beach. But what you can do with Illinois and Indiana is a lot of those variables are very similar. They share a border. They're geographically uh, close to each other. The weather is very constant. And you would actually think that Illinois' economy would be benefited by having Chicago. But what we've seen over the last two years is that while Pat Quinn has dramatically increased taxes and called for further tax hikes, Mike Pence across the, the border in Indiana has cut taxes and reduced the size of government. And so over the last two years, Indiana's economy is growing twice as quickly as Illinois'. 
The state uh, is creating jobs at twice the rate that Illinois is. And those two things then have impacts on state budgets in other areas. For instance, on food stamps, Indiana has reduced its food stamp enrollment by 50,000 over the last two years. Illinois has only reduced it by 1,200. So while taxes and spending and all these things are very complicated, clearly there is a relationship here and these decisions the governors are making matter. Obviously, uh, the Cato Institute is a nonpartisan organization, but how did Democrats versus Republicans perform and how, what has that been like historically? Well, the Cato Fiscal Report Card is a data-driven report card. We're not making qualitative assessments here to determine what the grades are. The data drives the results. And this year we found that uh, all four of the A grades were Republicans and all eight of the F grades were Democrats. Uh, we'd love to see more Democrats get higher scores, but I think the two parties uh, have uh, are increasingly becoming uh, separated on fiscal issues. The Democrats like to raise taxes and spending more than the Republicans, and that is unfortunate. Um, but uh, so, you know, if you look at all the uh, A grades, you've got, uh, you know, folks like Pat McCrory in North Carolina. Uh, he came into office really wanting to cut the size of uh, government to make the tax system a lot more efficient, cut unemployment insurance benefits. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have someone like Jerry Brown in California. It's increased spending substantially, uh, pushing for a $100 billion high-speed rail, rail line. Uh, the, the parties really are substantially different on fiscal policy at the state level. Sam Brownback of Kansas is uh, being criticized pretty sharply for tax cuts. What, what does your rating say about him? What Kansas Governor Sam Brownback has done over the last several years is dramatically cut the individual income tax rates in the state. He took the state's three individual tax brackets and consolidated them, them, consolidated them down to two brackets. Uh, was a tax cut of about $800 million on an annual basis. And so what the left has done is this, is they're criticizing this because this ta these tax cuts have put immense pressure on Kansas's budget, meaning that Kansas has not been able to increase spending every year. In fact, over the last three years, the Kansas budget has been functionally flat. And so the left is pointing out that going forward, the state is going to have some very large budget deficits. But even with the amount of projected revenue under these tax cuts, the Kansas budget can increase by about $500 million on an annual basis over the next five years. So clearly, even though he's cutting taxes, there is still room for growth, but ideally he'd be cutting spending even further. Where have governors moved up or down the most in your rankings? So one governor in particular is Rick Scott of Florida. He received an A in the last report card, and he receives a D in this report card. Uh, two years ago when it was released, he had come to office, uh, campaigned on a number of promises to cut taxes in the state, to reform spending. Those didn't pass the legislature, and unfortunately, he's moved in the other direction. The Florida budget has had dramatic increases in spending over the last two years, and he's failed to uh, continue to push those tax cuts. 
Yeah, there's a number of Republican governors that uh, are, are widely considered to be conservative who didn't score particularly well. So in Michigan, for example, uh, Rick Snyder has done a lot on business tax reforms, which is great, but his spending increased substantially. So he received a D on the Cato report card. Uh, Rick Scott is in Florida, as Nicole uh, mentioned, uh, increased spending substantially, so he got a lower grade. Um, and some of the others, Scott Walker in uh, Wisconsin, generally an excellent uh, governor, but he did score lower than average on spending, which is why he got a B rather than an A. And in Pennsylvania, Tom Corbett, uh, again, a very good uh, tax cutter. He's cut business taxes a lot, uh, but he also uh, supported a big tax hike for transportation. Uh, so his, his score is pushed down to a C. Nicole Kading and Chris Edwards, this is the governor's report card that the Cato Institute puts out uh, every two years, the fiscal policy report card on America's governors. You can download your copy at Cato.org. The shooting of Michael Brown by police officer Darren Wilson sparked days of protests in Ferguson, Missouri. Meanwhile, in New York City, thousands of residents have protested the violent arrest that led to Eric Garner's death. In recent years, the Department of Justice has sought to clean up police forces in Albuquerque, New Orleans, Seattle, and Detroit. Neil Franklin is executive director of law enforcement officers against prohibition. In September, Franklin spoke at the Cato Institute on the subjects of police misconduct and drug prohibition. I grew up in Baltimore, and uh, I think back to the 1960s when I'm downtown Baltimore on Howard Street with some friends, and we, we were exiting a movie theater to head back home and catch the bus, just one bus to head back up to our neighborhood in Reservoir Hill, and we're standing on a bus stop there on Howard Street and yes, there used to be movie theaters in downtown Baltimore. And we're waiting for the bus, and here comes a, a, a foot patrolman walking north on Howard Street, and he's looking at us, and he gets closer, and we just had the feeling that something just wasn't going to go right. And you know when things aren't going to go right between you and a police officer. And he begins to question us as to why we're downtown. And uh, we explain, we just came from the movie theater, the Mayfair 2, right across the street. And he says, well, hit the bricks, start walking that way. And I'm like, we're waiting for the bus, which is, we could actually see the bus a few, few blocks down. And see, these things never leave your memory, and they're crystal clear. It's the number 28 bus. And he pulls out his nightstick. You know, Baltimore has the espatoons and actually uh, that, that very unique nightstick that they twirl, which uh, we actually brought back um, after we had gotten rid of them. But he pulls it out, and one end of this nightstick is actually designed for poking. It's a very narrow tip, and you just jab someone right in a rib cage, and believe me, it, it, it makes a point, literally. And he takes it and he starts poking us in the ribs. Go on, start walking north now. It's no different than what we're experiencing today. 
like with Mike Brown. No video of that incident. We don't know exactly what occurred. We have an idea of what occurred. I could probably stand here right now and tell you what occurred. And I'm going to tell you one thing, and I don't have any problem saying this. It was about two black men walking in the street. If it were about the cigars, you would have heard that from day one. From day one. The police would have come out right away saying it was about this guy being suspected of, an, of, of a strong arm robbery of these cigars. The report came over the radio, the officer heard it, and he acted. But that wasn't the case. I know how it works. So I just wanted to, to make that point as I began here about this isn't something new. But we had a chance. We had a chance of changing some things. The civil rights movement. And as we come into the late 60s and going into the early 70s and things really do start to change, people had a lot of hope. Police departments were changing. You know, because even when police began serving in police departments, you know, well, in Baltimore, as with many cities, if you were a black police officer, you couldn't drive a car. There were many things you weren't allowed to do. And there's still a lot of friction between race internally in police departments. If you can't resolve it within the police department, you're sure not going to resolve it between police and community. But we, but we had a chance. But what happened? In the 1970s, we started the drug war. It was at a time when, when, when businesses started leaving, blue-collar jobs started leaving many of our cities. And why is that significant? It's significant because many blacks held these jobs with little education or, in some cases, no education. And these jobs start leaving. So in these communities, you, you pick up a, a side hustle. For some, it was running numbers. My father was one of those. He was a numbers runner. State took his part-time gig away from him. It's called the lotto, OK? 1976, July 29th, the Maryland lotto was born. But the drug war raged on. And many, many of these men had started selling drugs within their communities to make ends meet. But then we, the police, started ramping it up and ramping it up. Government funding coming in under Richard Nixon and every administration since because getting tough on crime got votes. So we started arresting people. You see, because the federal government recruited, bribed local law enforcement into this drug war. And I'm, and I'm going down this road because I'm, 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 there's a word, stigma, and it's going to come into play here really soon. So as we start law enforcement, as we start making all of these arrests for these drug crimes, these heinous drug crimes, oh my God, they're poisoning our, our communities with these drugs, just remember it's not these people selling drugs in our communities that have the boats and the airplanes, but that's another story. Okay. 
and the shipping companies and so on. But that's who we're targeting. And in cities like Baltimore, we're, we're taking down these major drug organizations with these kingpins. So these six or seven major drug operations in cities like, when I talk about Baltimore, I'm talking about every major city across this country. So we're chopping off the heads, we're going after the kingpins, and we turn six or seven major drug organizations literally overnight into 60, then 600 street corner operating drug organizations. And with that comes the violence. With that comes the competition between these crews on these corners. So, you know, the violence that we do see is directly related to the drug war and the police coming in and dismantling these drug operations. The, the harder we push, the more violence you see. Then the media gets in on it. And before you know it, we have terms like super predator. You know, and the crack era comes along in the, in the 1980s, and, and one of the major grants is, is because of a, 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 the murder of a police officer in New York. And, we, and here we have the burn grant. Millions of dollars every year going into law enforcement to, to fight the war on drugs. I could go on all day about the war on drugs, but I needed to paint this picture real clear because stigma has a lot to do with Michael Brown. Stigma has a lot to do with how law enforcement interacts with members of the black community. And it's not just how white police officers see young black men in these communities. It's about how black police officers see young black men within these communities, like me. When the Supreme Court spoke on the subject of police searches of mobile phones incident to arrest, it spoke clearly and with one voice, get a warrant. Cato senior fellow Jim Harper discussed the twin cases of Riley and Worry at Cato's Constitution Day held in September. The Riley decision is based on two cases that, that I, uh, I thought was interesting were argued separately, Riley and Worry. Uh, Riley, the one that the, that the uh, opinion was issued under, was the case uh, of an individual in California who was properly arrested uh, with a, a smartphone in his possession. It's a given in the case that he was properly arrested. The smartphone in his possession, law enforcement accessed and saw information that led them to believe that he was a gang member. Further investigation based on that, on that information uh, caused, caused uh, further charges to be le leveled against him. And upon conviction, he challenged the use of the cell phone data uh, in gathering that information for those, for those further charges. Worry was a different case in which uh, another man properly arrested uh, had a flip phone, and the flip phone had, as flip phones do, quite a bit less information, but the, the flip phone's ringing displayed uh, a, 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 an image that displayed the text, my house, and opening the flip phone enabled law enforcement to access the telephone number that correlated to my house, and then using a reverse lookup service, uh, find out what house that was, go to the house, uh, further investigate where they found further incriminating materials against worry. 
My suspicion is, and, and, it, and it would have followed the typical pattern, that these two cases were argued separately on the premise that there might be different outcomes in the two cases. Perhaps you could certainly, ahead of, ahead of time, you could certainly envision that one case, the smartphone case, might reflect a constitutional intrusion because of the vast amount of data that, it, that is on a smartphone. And the flip phone case may not have. And it would have been a very, very interesting line drawing exercise if the court had come to the conclusion that one was, a, one was an illegal search and one was a legal search. I think they set themselves up originally for that possible outcome. They didn't come to that conclusion, though. And it was a unanimous uh, opinion uh, combining the two cases in the Riley decision. The issue area being explored, of course, was the search incident to arrest doctrine, which some of you may remember from law school, and a few of you who have been defendants may know about it more intimately. Uh, the, 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 the basic doctrine is laid out by the Chamel decision of in 1969. In that case, if, the, if I recall the facts correctly, a person was arrested in his home, and law enforcement used the fact of the arrest in his home to search quite broadly within the home for, for whatever interested them. Uh, the court found that that was not an appropriate search, that the appropriate search incident to arrest uh, rests on, on uh, two rationales. One is a search that'll, that'll ensure the safety of the officers, so a search for weapons on the person, a search for weapons nearby, other instruments, removing instruments from an individual who might try to use them to elude uh, law enforcement to escape. The other is the likely loss of evidence. If you leave evidence with a defendant, with a, with a, a suspect, uh, they could try to destroy the evidence. They could try to eat it, throw it away, step, you know, step on it, crush it into the ground, whatever it may be. And so it's perfectly uh, reasonable under the Fourth Amendment to search uh, a, an arrestee in the interest of gathering evidence. Perhaps the apex of the uh, search incident to arrest doctrine was a case called Robinson in 1973 uh, from which the container doctrine arose. Robinson was arrested, to, to give you some local flavor, was arrested at 8th and C Street Northeast, just a few blocks from where I live now. It's a better neighborhood now. Uh, and, and he was arrested for a, for a driving infraction. And in the course of the arrest, they patted him down, found a cigarette pack uh, that was crumpled up in his shirt pocket. Uh, no chance whatsoever that a crumpled cigarette pack in the shirt pocket could have any further evidentiary use with regard to the arrest. But nonetheless, law enforcement officers searched the crumpled pack, found heroin capsules inside, and arrested Robinson. The court approved that arrest on a broad search incident to arrest doctrine. And since then, in subsequent cases, it started to pair back. Uh, cases where uh, law enforcement had searched a, 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 a large trunk, a luggage container, that was, that was proximate to the, to the arrestee, and so on and so forth. Well, so there's the search incident to arrest doctrine and container doctrine. The argument on the government side was that a cell phone, a flip phone, or a, or a smartphone uh, is, a, is equivalent to a container. It happens to contain a lot of information, but it's roughly the same as a small parcel or item you might carry on your person. The court said no. And again, combining the two cases, said the following. I'll just read the penultimate uh, paragraph from uh, Chief Justice Roberts' decision. Modern cell phones are not just another technological convenience. With all they contain and all they may reveal, they hold for many Americans the privacies of life, citing to Boyd, 1886, a major uh, case about the home. The fact that technology now allows an individual to carry such information in his hand does not make the information any less worthy of the protection for which the founders fought. 
Our answer to the question of what police must do before searching a cell phone seized incident to an arrest is accordingly simple. Get a warrant. Now, I like that quote. I think that's a fascinating, clear quote. And I think it was an affirmative choice on the part of Justice Roberts and perhaps other justices working with him on the opinion. Uh, I, like that. I like that outcome. I like that language. And, and I like the unanimity of the opinion, which still is, is quite rare with the court. But in my opinion, that the outcome in the case and the, and the language provides a direction, but not a path for Fourth Amendment doctrine in future cases. In his article, Andrew Pincus goes through many of the same cases that I would. Uh, the Kelo decision, K-Y-L-L-O, not K-E-L-O, the property rights decision, in 2001, in which Justice Scalia found that the use of a thermal imager to survey the side of, of a home and discover heat waves emanating from it was a search. The Jones case, uh, more recently, just a few years ago, found that attaching a GPS device to a car and using the fact of that GPS device being attached to the car over a period of four weeks to collect 2,000 pages of information about where that car has been is a search. Pincus went into the Maryland v. King case, which is a, a not, such, not so much a search case, but a case about the, the privacy consequences of gathering DNA evidence from arrestees. Uh, and, then, and then this case, Riley and Weary, its companion case, the check of a, of a cell phone properly taken from an arrestee, uh, its contents, and that being a search. Uh, I think you take direction from that, but certainly in the Riley case, I don't think we got any further elucidation of what doctrine the Supreme Court will use in the future with the Fourth Amendment. It's notable, I think, that in the Kelo decision, Justice Scalia did not rely on the reasonable expectation of privacy test that comes from Justice Harlan's concurrence in uh, Katz versus United States, 1967. Neither was the reasonable expectation of privacy test uh, used in the Jones case. And here in Riley, the court did not rely explicitly on the reasonable expectation of privacy test, though many, many commentators uh, assume that the basis of the outcome was the reasonable expectation of privacy test. That test, I've written several times and say every chance I get, uh, is a backward test. It, it reasons backward from expectations to constitutional protection, and it doesn't work. Most people know that it's circular, that uh, in, in the modern era, there's a sort of battle going on. What are our expectations with regard to modern communications? Well, if the government can pound down on them far enough, then they get to access them constitutionally. Whereas if we convince ourselves that we do have privacy, then we get constitutional protection. That's, uh, that's no basis for constitutional decision making. The path that I argue for and have argued for in brief to the Supreme Court uh, is to really follow the inspiration of Terry versus Ohio. That's the very familiar case uh, that was decided just shortly after Katz, in which law enforcement is spying a couple of shady characters looking like they're doing shady things. Uh, law enforcement officers seized them briefly, searched them, and found a gun. Terry versus Ohio ratified that. More importantly than the outcome was the fact that the, the Terry court explicitly noted the existence of a seizure and then explicitly noted the existence of a search. The, the seizure was stop here, you don't go anywhere. The search was the padding, and the feeling of a hard object against the hand was the search that revealed the existence of a gun. If Fourth Amendment doctrine is to be administered well, 
I think the Supreme Court should return to Terry-like decisions and follow as closely as possible the actual text of the Fourth Amendment. Do not use reasonable ex expectation doctrine to reason backward from expectations to constitutional protection. Rather, courts should ask first, was there a seizure? I ask first about seizures, though the phrase is search and seizure, because very often searches are preceded by a seizure. Was there a seizure? That's the taking of some property right, however small. And the Jones case is a good illustration of the taking of a very small property right. The attachment of a, of a small, even a small lightweight GPS device to the underside of a car converts that car to law enforcement's purposes. It violates even a slender read of that narrow right to exclude that's at the center of property rights. Things that are yours are yours for any reason and every reason, and someone else can't come along and claim they have a better reason why they should take these things. It's the essence of property rights, the right to exclude. In my brief to the court on that case, I cited Tony Honore, the sort of the legal philosopher who goes more deeply into the incidents of property that are so important. Was there a seizure, even a small seizure? We can talk about whether or not it was reasonable. And the way I think about it, there can be reasonable seizures when they're, when they're small enough, when their consequences are minimal. More importantly and more directly, was there a search? And more often cases deal with whether, whether or not there was a search. In the Kelo case, using a thermal imager to make things visible that were un otherwise invisible to law enforcement using Outre technology was a search. Law enforcement were standing on public property. They didn't invade a, a property right by walking onto to Kilo's land. But they used a high-tech device to take things that were otherwise not perceptible and make them perceptible. That's searching, almost literally. And like some kind of fool, I often cite Black's Law Dictionary to the Supreme Court of the United States, because I believe they should stick to natural language as best they can to administer the law well. The final question, and the question where the judging must happen, is was the seizure or search reasonable? There can be reasonable seizures. There can be reasonable searches. Under reasonable expectation doctrine, all the questions are usually collapsed together. And the finding of a search, which upsets a reasonable expectation of privacy, is almost always unconstitutional. But follow that path like you're, like you're, like you're implementing a law, a statute as written. Was there a seizure? Was there a search? Was it reasonable? Following the controversial use of military vehicles and weapons by police in Ferguson, Missouri, President Obama ordered a review of federal programs that facilitate the flow of weaponry from the Pentagon to local police departments. Shai Calvo, the mayor of Berwyn Heights, Maryland, was a victim of an erroneous and militarized police response at his home. He discussed his experience and what he's learned at the Cato Institute in September. So this is really a topic that I come to involuntarily. Um, I'm a policy wonk, always have been, but I did never dealt with police issues. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that I didn't come to this issue because I read, you know, Radley Balco's report, Overkill, and got an issue and decided to take it up as a small town mayor. Um, this really, the issue really came to my front door, literally. Um, it was in the summer of, uh, of 2008 when I just got home from a community event and was headed or to, from my day job, I was headed to a community event when a series of events uh, sort of alerted to me the fact that um, 
you know, something was terribly wrong. Uh, it began with my mother-in-law yelling out to me and a frightened scream as I was changing my clothes, saying, Shy, I, I, I think it's SWAT. Um, I then looked out the window to see that a SWAT team had surrounded my house, followed immediately by an explosion and gunfire. Um, and uh, it was a horrific event that I won't go into the details of, but um, basically what happened is a drug trafficker had stolen my wife's identity and used it to ship a box of drugs from Arizona to Maryland. Um, the drugs should have been intercepted by a FedEx driver who was on the take and, and would have, you know, had, you know, you know, on a normal occasion, we just sent the drugs into the, you know, the, the state of Maryland, but the police intercepted that box. It was called a parcel interdiction. They got drugs, you know, they got some dogs to sniff it. They, they repackaged it. They, they delivered it to my house and then they sent a SWAT team in to receive it. Um, and that led to um, a, horrific, a horrific event that my family was terrorized. Our two beloved black Labradors were shot and killed. And, uh, my family and me became one of those, inter, you know, kind of international stories that cable likes to chew on for for a couple of news cycles. Um, but since then, you know, there's, you know, it's one of those things. I I love being a small town mayor. I've done a lot of things of which I'm really really proud. Um, but this will always be the thing that I'm known for. The, the the picture that made the papers those days will probably be the one that you know runs in my obituary. But everyone always talks about the dogs. They always talk about why. You know, the dogs that were shot. And I love those dogs. That for me is a tragedy that I dealt with personally. But as I started to look into the issue of, of the incident, because that's who I am and I wanted to understand it, the issue wasn't why were my dogs shot and killed. The issue for me was always why was a SWAT team at my house? Why was it there in the first place? Why as a small town mayor did the police deploy a paramilitary unit to my doorstep without doing the basic investigation that, that they would have even known I was the mayor of my town. It was a county police you know, SWAT team. I, I'm the mayor of a town that does not have a SWAT team. But how did it happen like that? How did we get there? And so in the, in the, in the weeks and months that followed, those questions I think were being asked by me and a whole lot of other people for the first time because the incident drew so much attention. And over the course of you know, a legislative process and over the course of a, a, um, a lawsuit, which I eventually settled with Prince George's County that lasted about three and a half years, I am now an expert in what happened on my house that day. I know where every member who was there went to high school. We did 150 hours of depositions. And what we learned is actually, for me, the alarming part about this, that somehow, somewhere along the way, Prince George's County um, developed a policy where all search warrants were served with SWAT teams. If they had a search warrant, they sent a SWAT team in to start the investigation. I learned a lot about their, their training practices. Um, I learned a lot about um, how common these were. It was Prince George's County the year before um, our incident had deployed SWAT teams 700 times. The unit that came to my house, they did this. This is what they did, parcel and addiction. They did it three times a week, 150, you know, 150 times a year. It was truly business as usual. It wasn't unusual. The unusual thing is that someone paid attention. And so I worked with lawmakers in 2009 to pass what was then the first law of its kind, uh, which was a, simply an oversight mechanism to shine the light on SWAT teams, because I wanted to understand how often is this happening. And what we learned is in the state of Maryland, somewhere between 36 and 40 law enforcement agencies every year um, deploy SWAT teams, a total of about 1,650 times, give or take, any given year. When they deploy, I think 91% of the time, it's for search warrants. Um, it wasn't for what we thought SWAT teams were developed for. 
we always thought SWAT teams were about, you know, the rots, lots riots and, and barricade situations about, uh, um, you know, uh, emergencies, you know, kind of these high risk situations, bank robberies, barricades, hostage situations. That's not true at all. Routinely, they are now used for, for, for search warrants. When they deploy, it doesn't matter whether it's a no-knock raid or knock and announce. 70% of the time, they force entry. They actually force entry more than they arrest people. They kick in the door, which may be a great policy for Home Depot, but it doesn't work well to serve our public policy. It's incredibly inefficient um, in so many cases. And this, the teams involved, most of them come from little agencies who don't have adequate training. It's not the full-time job of the officers. And it's just this proliferation that we don't think really, I don't think I had any idea as a, then a three-time elected official that it was used that way. And so that began a process of sort of looking at what was underlying that decision. And you know, we were able to move forward with a lawsuit and in the end we settled a case that included some meaningful reforms and really got to institute best practices. Um, and, but even today, as we see tanks on the streets in, in, in you know, Ferguson, Missouri, I don't think it's a surprise. Because what I've also learned is that this didn't come about accidentally. It wasn't some day that some politician woke up and said, we have to do more SWAT team deployments. What happened was a slow process over a 40-year period of time, principally drawn to the war on drugs and, and federal largesse. Because I can tell you in the 1970s, yes, SWAT teams were established by law, law, law enforcement agencies, but they weren't going to spend precious property taxes on SWAT teams. That wasn't their goal. These were for unusual situations, not the norm. But what happened in the 1980s with the war on drugs is suddenly um, the federal government began to really push that metaphor to reality. That's when, you know, although it didn't begin then, that's when the surplus in the military equipment started to happen. We changed the way over time that we do asset forfeiture laws, which really changed the nature of policing in many cases. We started, the federal government really increased its spending on local law enforcement, which in many cases, as a small town mayor, I like, but when they're funding multi-jurisdictional efforts that are essentially SWAT teams, they're doing all this essentially without any oversight. And local law enforcement, you know, local elected officials like myself, these are like federal grants, so they don't get the same oversight they would get if it was my tax dollars going to it. What we have today is something that's evolved over time, again, not intentionally, but is something that uh, has happened slowly honestly under the radar, and it only pops up every few years, every six months, when some tragedy happens and suddenly the media starts paying attention. But it is happening every day. So ending my few minutes with uh, some just general observations, there's a few things I do want to share that hopefully will be fodder for future you know, conversation here. One, I think it's actually really important that when we talk about these issues, we don't focus narrowly on the individual or the individual incident. I find that in police departments that have real troubles, the real problems are systemic, they're cultural. It's easy to focus on the, the officer who pulled the trigger. But I think it's much more important to focus on who hired that officer, who failed to train that officer, and who failed to lead that officer appropriately. What are the policies and practices that are in place? I think it's wonderful that the US Justice Department is doing a patterns and practice investigation of Ferguson, Missouri's police department. But it shouldn't take the US Department of Justice to do that. Why aren't states looking at these individual incidents more often. And secondly, I think equally important, we as citizens, but I'll say this, me and my colleagues as local elected officials, we need to place a greater priority and emphasis on oversight. 
And as a small town mayor, I can tell you, it was very hard to come into office green, I was 33 at the time, and argue with a police chief. Like he had 25 years of experience, I was just some guy who got elected. But at the end of the day, he was a police chief under authority that I gave him and under appropriations that I passed. And his badge was the authority of the citizens of my town. And I had a duty to stand up to him and disagree with him and demand that he be accountable for the decisions he make. But too often when you have instances of police abuse or real questions, the elected officials stick their heads in the ground and they allow the police to circle the wagons and admit no wrongdoing. And the problem is when you admit no wrongdoing, you learn nothing from it. You just continue business as usual. And the truth is, mistakes will happen in any form of activity. But when you give a guy a badge and a gun, you have to couple that with oversight. And that doesn't mean that every police officer who makes mistakes should be sued or punished. Really what we need is oversight panels that can look broadly at trends and identify problems and demand systemic solutions. Because you can fire a bad officer, and sometimes that needs to happen. But if another bad officer fills his place, it doesn't fix anything. And more so, a good person in a bad system will give you bad results. And what I've generally found is that the system matters more than anything else. And we have to stand up on the oversight, because oversight isn't the sexy part. It's not setting up a new program you can put your name on. But when it comes to doing the basic elements of government or the things that people actually rely on and care about, oversight is essential. At Cato's Constitution Day event in September, New York Law School professor and former head of the American Civil Liberties Union, Nadine Strawson, discussed the First Amendment case of McCutcheon v. FEC, particularly how the case has been misrepresented in the media and misunderstood by its opponents. This was the sixth decision by the Roberts Court to review campaign finance regulations and the sixth to strike down the challenge regulations on First Amendment grounds. These decisions have been incredibly maligned and misunderstood thanks to a lot of media distortion by media outlets that all have an unacknowledged conflict of interest because their voices are amplified by every law that restricts other voices in the campaign context. The hysterical overreactions that greeted McCutcheon lumped it together with the court's 2010 Citizens United ruling as dooming democracy. Now, let me note two points in response briefly. First, predictions that big money would drown out other voices have been proven wrong in both elections that have taken place since Citizens United was decided. And secondly, these two cases deal with very distinct issues, which too often get lumped together. Citizens United struck down limits on independent expenditures by corporations and unions, whereas McCutcheon struck down aggregate limits on contributions by individuals. And as I will explain, those are very distinct phenomenon and have been throughout the court's campaign finance jurisprudence. Now, I personally have felt a special connection to the McCutcheon case ever since two old friends and colleagues of mine wrote a book about it, When Money Speaks, by Ronald Collins and David Scover. Cato hosted a terrific panel about the McCutcheon decision this spring at which Ron spoke. You can watch it on Cato 
Meadows website, which I uh, certainly enjoy doing. And also, uh, I highly recommend for those of you who are really interested in this case, the terrific article in the Cato Supreme Court Review that Alan Dickerson wrote. Well, Ron and David, in their book, were so kind as to dedicate this terrific book to Nadine Strassen, the first lady of liberty. But I'd say that uh, not because I have an inflated ego, to the contrary. My defense of letting money speak, to paraphrase their title, has in most of my circles caused me to be called a puppet of plutocracy, uh, not a champion of liberty. Uh, seriously, and this ties into uh, some of the remarks that Elia was making, there are very few liberal civil libertarians who oppose campaign finance regulations. Uh, it was the ACLU that long spearheaded the fight against all of these laws, including in the 1976 landmark case Buckley versus Vallejo, in which the ACLU was both a plaintiff and co-counsel and opposed every single aspect of the Federal Election Campaign Act. This summer, I teamed up with one of the few other, what I'm now calling liberal-tarians, uh, who oppose government regulations in this area, namely Floyd Abrams for an IQ squared debate. Despite the fact that Floyd is demonstrably one of the nation's most effective advocates, the live audience at our debate voted overwhelmingly against our defense, even of the right to spend your own money on your own political expression. And polls indicate that this reaction is typical, which is really worrisome when you consider the ongoing push for a constitutional amendment to overturn Supreme Court rulings in this area, which would make a gaping exception to the First Amendment for the very political expression that is at the core of the First Amendment. So even though we deregulation supporters have been winning in the Supreme Court, I would say because we have been winning in the Supreme Court, we have been losing the proverbial battle for hearts and minds. And worse yet, the contempt, and that's not an overstatement, the contempt and disdain that have been heaped upon the Supreme Court rulings in this area have spilled over into a more general disdain for the First Amendment. Uh, which Ilya alluded to, even among key institutions that one would expect and hope to be especially protective of free speech, including the media and including universities. So I really want you to keep this broader concern in mind as we directly consider McCutcheon. Again, it struck down aggregate limits that federal law imposes on someone's total contributions to all federal candidates and committees in contrast with base limits on each single contribution. The aggregate limits restrict how many candidates or committees a donor may support. McCutcheon is the first time that the court ever struck down a federal contribution limit. And that's important in light of the distinction, as I mentioned, the court has drawn uh, consistently between contributions to campaigns on the one hand uh, versus expenditures in support of campaigns. On the other hand, that distinction goes all the way back to Buckley. Buckley said that contributions are both less central to free expression and more likely to cause quid pro quo corruption or its appearance. So Buckley subjected expenditure limits to what we lawyers call strict scrutiny, 
presumptively unconstitutional and struck down all such limits in that case, uh, whereas it subjected contribution limits only to intermediate scrutiny, more deferential to Congress, and upheld all such limits. That dichotomy was controversial from the get-go. As I said, the ACLU and the other plaintiffs opposed the contribution limits on the same grounds that we opposed the expenditure limits. Since then, that dichotomy has gotten even more controversial as we live with its unintended adverse consequences. Among other things, the pernicious combination of an unlimited demand for funds with the need to raise them in strictly limited increments. And that has led to the huge amount of time that candidates have to spend in fundraising. And it also makes it harder for non-incumbents to mount meaningful challenges. Because relatively unknown candidates depend on seed money to get started, a few large contributions from the necessarily small donor base that they have at the outset. Notably, one of the Buckley plaintiffs was Eugene McCarthy, who repeatedly said he could not have mounted his historic challenge to Lyndon Johnson without very large contributions from a small handful of fat cat liberal donors. And McCarthy could never understand how liberals could possibly support these limits in light of that experience. So the ACLU argued in Buckley that contribution limits, as well as spending limits, violate not only free speech and association principles, but also violate the very equality principles that are said to justify those limits. And perversely, I, I continue to believe that invalidating contribution limits would boost democratic and egalitarian ideals, as well as free speech. So, I welcome McCutcheon as a small but notable step in that direction. Now, to be sure, the court in McCutcheon declined to the request to reverse Buckley's general distinction outright. That was a request that was made not only by the plaintiff, but also by some friends of the court, including the Cato Institute in a very forceful brief that was written by Ilya and Sophie Cole. The court said it had no occasion to reconsider Buckley's general deference toward contribution limits because it conceded that the aggregate limits failed even deferential scrutiny. On the other hand, McCutcheon did reverse the portion of Buckley which had upheld the aggregate limits that were then in effect. To explain how the court reached that result, I have to give you a little background. In Buckley, the court said there was little, if any, evidence that unlimited campaign contributions actually caused quid pro quo corruption, which is the exchange of money for political favors, which was already illegal under bribery laws. However, in an excess of caution, the court still upheld contribution limits as a prophylactic measure to prevent circumvention of the existing laws. Ever since then, the government has sought to justify all new regulations as attempts to avoid circumvention of existing regulations, even without any evidence that existing regulations are not working. So to quote the court, prophylaxis upon prophylaxis, McCutcheon has followed that pattern. The base contribution limit to candidates, $2,600, presumes that contributions at that level aren't large enough to create even a presumption of corruption. As campaign finance attorney James Bopp commented, that number is so low, it can't even buy a Democrat congressman. <laughs> so 
Although, uh, logically, multiple such contributions to many candidates also don't create even an appearance of corruption of any of those candidates. Therefore, the government had to come up with another rationale for the aggregate limit, and here's what it was. That the aggregate limit was needed to stop the donor from colluding with multiple candidates to whom the donor gave money, so that all of those candidates would collude to pass on all of those contributions to a single candidate in such a way that the single candidate would realize who the original donor was and be inappropriately beholden to that donor. The McCutcheon court rightly concluded that this rationale has many flaws. First, there's no evidence that any such schemes have ever been implemented. So the government and the Supreme Court dissenters had to rely on wild hypotheticals. Second, any such schemes would violate existing regulations. Third, the court suggested alternative new regulations that could further prevent this hypothetical possibility, speculative possibility from occurring that would be less burdensome on speech. While the vote was five to four to strike down the aggregate limits, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion was only for a four-justice plurality. Justice Thomas refused to join that opinion because he has had a long-standing position that contribution limits should be fully unconstitutional. Although the plurality refused to join him in taking that step explicitly, Justice Thomas explained that the, major, the plurality's rationale, the plurality did not have a rationale that was consistent with constitutional, uh, with limits on contribution limits. And I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to explain the details of that, but I do agree with Justice Thomas uh, when he says that the, 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 the ongoing rule or limits of uh, the court's ongoing upholding of base contribution limits is now a rule that is lacking a rationale. So that's it seriously, and the dissenters, uh, the dissent written by Justice Breyer, really critiqued the uh, plurality opinion from that perspective, that it does undermine, although it didn't uh, explicitly overturn base contribution limits. There's a second really significant way in which McCutcheon uh, drills a hole into existing campaign finance regulations, and um, that is that it explicitly sets out as a concrete and categorical rule that the only rationale that will be accepted for any campaign finance regulations is quid pro quo corruption, the exchange of fav political favors for money, or its appearance, and very importantly, and explicitly and categorically for the first time, the court clearly rejected a broader, more malleable concept of corruption that could just, was said to justify, in a few past decisions, uh, to justify regulations, this concept of undue access or influence. Uh, many of us believe that that is, a, that is what democracy is all about. You vote for a candidate, you give money to a candidate because you want that person to share and be responsive to your concerns. That is not corruption. That is democracy in action. Uh, and a final positive aspect, long-going, long-range aspect of McCutcheon is that it is, uh, could well lead to deregulation of contributions to political parties. This was something that was emphasized, I thought, very effectively in Cato's uh, uh, Supreme Court brief, uh, which uh, explained that one of the adverse uh, impacts of the current regime has been to reduce the role of political parties, putting them in a straitjacket, 
with their increased accountability and transparency. I suspect that I'm out of time, so I should uh, come to my conclusion, which is that, uh, oh, let me just quote, I'm sure you'll give me time to quote Cato's brief on this point, that these regulations have pushed the flow of money away from candidates and parties toward unelected, non-transparent advocacy groups, leading to a decrease in political competition. So ironically, this regulatory regime, quoting the Cato brief, undermines the main goals of most campaign finance reformers, political accountability and open government. And McCutcheon is, to quote David Brooks, a small step back toward a party-centric system, and that's positive. I'll give the second last word to Justice Breyer's uh, vitriolic dissent in McCutcheon, where he said the court's ruling undermines, perhaps devastates, what remains of campaign finance reform, to which I say, hear, hear. In 2005, the Danish newspaper Yillens Posten published cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, which sparked protests from Muslim groups around the world. In The Tyranny of Silence, the paper's culture editor, Fleming Rose, explains why he decided to publish the cartoons and the impact it has had on the global debate on tolerance and freedom of speech. You can get your copy of The Tyranny of Silence at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.